Welcome to Pixelate Radio on the web at getpixelated.com. That's getpixel, the number eightedcom Now, here's your host, Craig Shoemaker. Now, you've probably heard me say it before, but you know, trade shows are all about the people. There's just a truckload of smart people walking around. And lucky for you, I happen to have my mic with me during TechEd 2008. So we're talking to David Kelly, whose team was responsible for the Silverlight app featured in the keynote. Ted Neward's going to tell us about critical UI decisions. And Kate Gregory shares tips on easy ways of tapping into the Vista experience for your applications. You got to check this one out. Well, I still have more content from TechEd to share with you. Uh, I've got this show, which is basically a compilation of a, a couple different talks that we had with people, and then also uh, even some more coming up afterwards. But I did want to get a chance to share with you the conversations that I did have. One of the cool things for me was to well, be in the room when Bill Gates gave his last keynote address. And you've probably heard by now much of, of what was talked about there. But one of the things that I always liked was the video that they produced for you know what might Bill Gates' last day be like and, and what it means by the fact that he's retiring. If you haven't seen it, I've put the video on the show notes, and here's one of my favorite parts of that video. Yeah, Bill's always been a bit of a ham, but more importantly, it's the creative risks he takes that really set him apart. Big Pimpin, I'm Bill D. Big Pimpin, yeah, you know me. Got it. Killed the Billy G. Hey, let me, let me get one thing straight with you. You can retire and then unretire? Exactly. Gotta keep him guessing. Thanks, Jay. No, it was great. Not so much. It's hard, though. Somebody gotta tell him. It's horrible. So after coming out of the of the keynotes, uh, I go out to check my mail and get set up over in the Wi-Fi area, and I happen to just set my laptop down to some guy, and uh, we get to talking. And he asked me, so, so what did you think of the, the Silverlight demo in the keynote? So the first thing I'm going to show you all today is an application that is currently under development, which is a Silverlight-based application. Now, this app is called Crossfader, and it is a, a, you know, a social networking app that you can use to share your digital content. Could be music, could be videos, could be, you know, audio, song, you know whatever, or pictures, whatever, you know, fancies your attention, you want to be able to create and then share it with your friends and family, and more importantly, with you know, other members in the online community that you choose to be a part of. I was like, yeah, it's pretty good. Turns out it's David Kelly, the guy who runs the team that built Crossfader. David works for Identity Mine, which is really well known for their, their Silverlight and WPF work. So the first question I hit him with is, well, what is Crossfader? Well, it's uh, the most complicated Silverlight app to date. It's uh, a Silverlight client. It has a, uh, a really kind of rich, it's like Facebook on steroids for artists, musicians, this kind of thing. And uh, there were uh, four teams in two countries that built it, and I managed the technical architecture. I didn't do the UI design, but... Uh, so we have a, a series of WCF services. We integrate with uh, Silverlight Streaming, and we allow users to, to log in, to play with media, to uh, kind of interact with it in a kind of a rich, quasi-3D sort of way. And you know, we, we learned a lot. Now, one of the things that Crossfader featured was as you opened it up, there was this control that was kind of like a conveyor belt. And this application, when we started building this application, we said there's going to be one key design principle that we wanted to have in mind. And that was to deliver 
an interactive, immersive user experience. And the way we thought we would deliver that is through a virtual conveyor belt. So tell me about how you created the conveyor control. Well, actually, we're probably going to replace the conveyor control because I have some, uh, there's some architectural issues with it. Because right now, you feed it uh, a block of tiles. You, you add a data collection and it's data bound to that collection and then it looks at it, builds out a bunch, or instantiates a bunch of these tile controls and it kind of lays them out in kind of a quasi-random sort of way and then it just kind of animates it across the screen. And we're probably going to do something more, more like a panel control as opposed to just having a block and animating across the screen where we animate the individual tiles because I we can, with user feedback, we're able to see that there's there's some there's a few issues with that architecturally speaking, so we're going to uh, probably does it end up slowing down or what's what's the issue? Well, the the issue is between the sets of animation there's a pause and because of the way it's calculating and building out those animations it's there's not really a good way to get around it and so the solution because this is still we haven't even released it to test to beta yet. So we, we want to get rid of that pause. And to do that, we need to be able to manage the animation on a more granular level. In this case, we're probably going to use something like a dispatch timer. If, if anyone was at Mix and they saw like uh, Mike or Robbie's presentations where they use like animating panel base and they use a dispatch timer to manage those, those uh, animations with individual tiles, we want to shift to a paradigm like that where, where we can have that more precise control as opposed to the way the conveyor was implemented. So like they were saying earlier, Crossfader is still in development. When it is ready, you'll be able to find it at crossfader.com. And it'll be interesting to see what the final product looks like, but it's also neat to be able to get a peek inside of, of what's happening as they're building an application this big and the thought processes that they're going through. Now, David does a lot of Silverlight work and uh, he, he runs a site called hackingsilverlight.net. And so I wanted to find out a little bit more about that also. And if people want to find out more about you, what, uh, where can they go? Well, uh, my blog is hackingsilverlight.net. So I do a lot of hacking Silverlight to make it do things it shouldn't do or probably shouldn't do. All right, well, what, uh, what, what is some of the stuff that Silverlight shouldn't be able to do that you're well, working on? Maybe more of it's stuff that I think Silverlight should do, but doesn't, like um, mouse wheel support. So I wrote my little uh, mouse wheel uh, class that you add in Silverlight, and when you load that control, it hacks the DOM and streams out a bunch of stuff and, so it, and attaches it to your, your, the HTML model in the browser so that now magically you get wheel events. So it's just a class of people? It's a Silverlight object. You, you just include it in your control and you just have to instantiate it and then... Can people download that off your blog? Uh, I believe so. I actually uh, <laughs> yesterday started... It's a, a mystery. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I did a blog post some time ago showing people how to do it. And uh, I'm actually adding a CodePlex project okay. that, uh, that I started yesterday that I'm going to add all those controls. So there's like mouse wheel support. I have a... Uh, a control that hacks the browser history model so you can add, so you can integrate your Silverlight app with the, the browser history stack. It's a hack and it doesn't really do it, but it appears that way when you use it, use it properly. And, and you don't have to write all the infrastructure yourself. Client side, it's actually all in Silverlight as, a, as opposed to uh, you know, writing a bunch of JavaScript. 
And then I have a, a bunch of panels I've written. Uh, um, I took uh, uh, Robbie's animating panel base, and uh, I'm actually talking with another guy at IM. He wrote another Silverlight Control. We're going to kind of merge them to make a new animating panel base that'll do, do different kinds of effects, like bounces and different things between transitions. And so there's a bunch of other like panel controls and other things like that that are, that are on there. So you can find his goodies at hackingsilverlight.net. And in the show notes, I'll provide links to the CodePlex project and the other things that David talked about. So one of the things that's always really important is to know a little bit about the person that you're interviewing before you stick a mic in their face. Now, I had some time set aside to talk to Ted Neward, and if you know anything about him, you know that uh, he knows exactly how he feels on certain subjects. And he's got a lot to offer because, as we're going to find out, he spends a significant amount of time in other places besides the .NET space, and that that really gives him a great perspective on things. And when you're just starting off an interview, you know, sometimes you have to ask questions just to get the feel for things, see how the conversation is going. So I started off with a question with Ted and didn't quite get the, the passionate Ted Neward I was looking for. So I decided to switch gears and start off with something a little more like this. So um, you're, you're one of those guys who thinks that um, you know, there's just one platform to stick with. You kind of identify yourself with a, a language and that, that's what you really based your career off of, right? Yeah, nice, nice way to open up. You know, let, let's see, uh, President Bush, you believe strongly in uh, big government and uh, not involved. No, I don't believe any of that stuff, so shush. Um, I live actually in two different worlds simultaneously, several different worlds actually, both the Java and the .NET space. Uh, I spend a lot of time looking at a lot of different languages. Uh, I spend a lot of time looking at a lot of different architectures, approaches, ideas, etc. Because I believe very firmly that there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all. Uh, I believe very strongly that there are no such things as best practices. There are practices that have consequences. And whether or not they're best depends on whether or not you know your particular situation, your context, um, you know yields yields a, yields an environment in which a particular solution works well for you. There are certain scenarios where web apps work well, and there are certain scenarios where a rich client app works well, and there are certain scenarios where a console app works. You know, it, it, it suits best what we need for that particular situation. But it's always context dependent, and without knowing that context. You know, it's, it's hopeless to try to say in isolation that a particular idea, practice, technology, platform, whatever, is best. Well, and, and you kind of split up um, how you make these decisions, particularly for the presentation layer, into about five different pieces. Um, those being style, implementation, perspective, cardinality, and locality. And one of the things that, that I read in, in the article that you wrote was that you know, sometimes people build these applications thinking, well, we're just going to need a user interface, but at the same time, well, what if your admin users need a, a console application to build with? H how do you, keeping all these pieces in mind, when you approach an application, decide how you're going to build it? Well, you know, in some respects, the, the goal of the, the pragmatic architecture column up on the, the MSDN Architecture Dev Center was, was to try to to try to put some kind of taxonomy, codification, you know, to try to demystify some of that process. And it's definitely not a finished product by any stretch of the imagination. The, the session that you mentioned is actually, we opened it up to the floor and you know, said, do you, do you agree with these, these five categories, these attributes, if you will, of a UI? 
And a number of people came up with a number of additional ideas that you know merit discussion, merit you know um, merit some some idea of review. And and I'm probably going to either write another article or a blog post or something saying, well, what about these other concepts? Because I really do want this to be something that everybody finds useful, not just me, you know, having written an article on it. Um, the the intent here, in many respects, was to say, given that I have users who want to build an application, given that I have some particular piece of code I need to write, what, what attributes can I think about? What attributes can I sort of logically group some of my questions to my users around, as well as some of the requirements that users aren't going to be able to express? Because no user, nobody who ever uses a business application is going to be able to say, oh yes, and by the way, the administrative interface to this application that the system administrators will use should be done in a console-based fashion so that they can build command scripts and PowerShell scripts around administration and so forth. Users can only think in terms of their business requirements, and one of the things that I think we have lost sight of a little bit in terms of our software design methodologies, be they agile or waterfall or whatever, is that there are a number of non-business-related requirements I mean, at the end of the day, it's all business related, it's all business value, but there's definitely administrative needs, there's definitely maintenance kinds of needs, there's non-business function needs that need to be addressed as well. And so, this was kind of what, what you mentioned perspective. This is what sort of keyed that attribute to me because a, a UI, depending upon the perspective that we're taking on this, a UI will, will need to have different feel to it. Administrators will want a console-based UI so they can script it so that they don't have to constantly be clicking through a wizard. Even in some cases, you want to have different perspectives between beginning and advanced users, right? Microsoft has wrestled with this problem for years. How do we make a user interface sufficiently powerful enough for advanced users without making it incredibly overwhelming for the novice user? Because even within a small user community of people using your enterprise business application, forget shrink wrap for just a second, that's an extension of the problem, right? That's just the problem at a larger scale. Even within a company of, say, 500 people, if you have 500 people using your application, standard bell curve says there's going to be some people at the one end of the curve who really want to be able to do things that are very advanced, very powerful, and the other end of the bell curve are going to be people who just hired in and are like, I can't <laughs> use it. So having this notion of perspective lets us basically say, okay, I really want to have several different views of this application um, even if it's the same app, that doesn't even consider the idea that we'll have different applications. The example I used in the session was, if you're Amazon.com, there are people who are buying books from you, you and me, and there are people who are putting books into the database, right? The people at Amazon who receive the publisher notifications, et cetera, et cetera. Those really want to be two entirely different user interfaces, even though, logically, it's the same application. And there's, you know, somebody out there listening to this is going to say, no they're not, no they're not, they're different applications. Fine, however you want to, however finely you want to slice up the notion of application, they're still the same logical system. They're working against the same data and so forth. So you want, the, the, the goal of this article was sort of to give us talking points, thinking points about what we're trying to build as well as the technologies that we have available to us, right? The first two points, style and implementation, speak more to the technology themselves. They have certain implications, right? If your implementation of a UI is done in 
code, then it's generally more easily dynamically modifiable at runtime than if it's done via markup. And what we're seeing is a lot of the UI technologies are starting to espouse both, so maybe this category will go away, I don't know. But it's really just intended not to be a strict taxonomy, you know, like genus and phylum and all that, but to be sort of a, a framework in which to think about user interface and to be able to analyze it and be able to say literally, will this particular UI technology work for the particular solution I am attempting to build and how do I want to think about the thing that I'm trying to build in order to think about which UI technologies to use? I want to, I want to sort of think about it from both directions. It's just a thought process kind of framework. You know, having a scripted flowchart, no, we're probably never going to get there. But just having some kind of objective way to think about what it is I want to build and how I want to build it is something that has eluded architecture and architects in software for far too long. And so I figured, you know what? I'm just going to take a stab at it. And if, if ultimately five years from now we look back at it and laugh, fine, because we'll have something better. Right. But if we don't get anything better, at least we took a stab at it. Right, at least there's the forward motion in that area. That's the attempt, that's the try, basically. I'll make sure we put a link uh, up to it in the show notes. And if people want to find any more information about you, where should they go? Um, well, it uh, turns out there's this really cool website. Uh, it's, it's the everything you ever wanted to know about Ted Neward portal called www.google.com. Um, but I maintain, I hang my shingle out on the internet on www.tedneward.com. My blog is at blogs.tedneward.com. And, um, you know, there's lots, of, there's lots of things that I've written. There's lots of things that people have written about me, some of which are nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm generally pretty easy to find, and if you start at tednewer.com, you can usually find what you're looking for. Right on, well, thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. So you were talking uh, at the show about the, the Vista Bridge. Can you t tell us about what that is? So last, but certainly not least, we get a chance to talk to Kate Gregory about the Vista Bridge and ways that you can uh, use the Vista experience in your applications. Sure, the, the Vista Bridge is a library. It was originally a sample, and uh, the way that you can get it today is as a sample. You download the platform SDK and drill around inside the samples uh, folder, and eventually you'll find it. Um, and it, it can be used just as that, as a way of figuring out how to do the kind of interop you need to do to reach the cool new Vista features. But because it's an assembly, you can add a reference to it and just start accessing, uh, treat it as a wrapper and uh, use it as a library to get those cool new Vista features into your code without having to understand uh, interop and p-invoke and DLL import and the like. And so when we're talking about those new features, what, what kind of features would people expect to be able to use? The really obvious visual ones are things like the command link, which is the big white button with the extra text and a, and, and a nice light-up behavior when you move over it. Uh, the task dialogs, which is, a, I call that a message box on steroids. And uh, restart and recovery, which lets applications uh, save your stuff when they crash uh, by being called in on another thread by the operating system and then start up again and recover uh, what they saved on the way down so that you don't lose any of your work even if the app blows up. So how much work is involved in putting together the restart and recovery? So for restart and recovery, you basically need to make two function calls um, if you're using the Vista Bridge. Uh, so you create a, a settings object and pass it to one function call, then that's to arrange to be recovered. And then you create another settings object and pass it to a second function call to arrange to be restarted. And uh, you're pretty much good to go, except for obviously writing the code that saves your stuff out and the code that uh, loads your stuff again when you restart. 
So the code that saves your stuff out, you can call it whatever you like, and you pass a delegate to that function into that first function call about arranging for recovery, and that will make sure that Vista calls that function of yours when uh, the app is, is dying. Okay. And uh, what's the best place to, to save that information? In my demos, I just write something in the hard drive. Real important, obviously, to write it in a per-user area because this is Vista. You don't want to get into UAC <laughs> and virtualization, so don't don't with the current directory. That could be a really bad thing. Um, uh, you know, I use uh, there's an enumeration available in special folders, and you can get a hold of something like application data, which is a nice, handy per-user store. But if your application is a little more involved and you already maybe have a configuration file where you're specifying, you could specify where to save recovery data as well. And so the, the, it's going to restart the application and then uh, you just have handlers in there basically to, to pull out what was saved so you can use it from there? That's right. When Vista restarts the application, it passes in what's called a command line hint. And when you arrange to register for restart, you choose your command line hints. So you could choose a string like restarting if you wanted, but what I do is I use a string which is the path of where I saved the data. Okay. And so then my form load says, oh, you know, if, if I was past this, then go get that file and open it up and, and read the variables back in and you're good to go. Okay. And so when, if someone's going to use the new command link feature, well, do they, is it just a, a new object that they can pass in some extra arguments to, to to allow it to have the functionality? Sure, a command link is a button. And so if you want to do it by hand, you would create a button and then you would set some styles on it. Um, probably by uh, using a different constructor than you know how to use. And then you would simply send it a Windows message uh, passing a particular numerical value that means set note text and a string representing the note text. Most people don't like sending Windows messages, you know? It's only one function call. You have to use a DLL import to bring in the right send message overload, but most people don't like doing that. So in the Vista Bridge, there's um, an object called a command link, which inherits from button. So you can put it anywhere, you could put a button and you, it throws all the same events as button, it's exactly the same as button, but it has extra properties. And one of the extra properties is this note text. So you just, now you're doing a property set. And you can even do it in the designer and it'll look right in the designer while you're working on the dialogue. Now one of the issues that comes up with Silverlight and WPF is that we have all these great new capabilities. And sometimes it's, you know, people are using them just because they can. What can you tell us about how to know when to use these features? Well, one of the big questions has got to be, are you trying to support Vista and XP at the same time? Uh, restart and recovery is not available on XP. You're going to be calling APIs that don't exist. That's a very bad plan. <laughs> so at the very least, you want to have some sort of if around that that checks your Windows version and doesn't try to call them on, on versions below Vista. In the case of the command link, um, it's just a button. And it's a really large button, usually, because it needs to make room for the text and the node and the little green arrow. And if you put that out on XP, you just get this really lame looking button. It's enormous with, you know, one word in the very center of it. So uh, you might consider, depending on how important it is to you, uh, actually going and having two versions of a particular form and checking your Windows version and putting up the appropriate form for where you're headed for to get you through a transition zone. If you're lucky enough to be in a controlled environment where you know all your users are on Vista, then you can go to ta town and party with that. So if people wanted to find out more information about you, where should they go? Uh, my blog, uh, www.gregcons.com, that's uh, G-R-E-G-C-O-N-S.com, slash Kate blog. Right on, cool. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Well, I think it goes without saying I had a great time talking to everybody and meeting up with a number of different people at TechEd. I will be at PDC this year. I will be at VS Live in Las Vegas. And uh, hey, hopefully get a chance to catch up with you sometime soon, too. This is Craig Shoemaker, and I will be talking to you soon.
Pixelate Radio on the web at getpixelated.com. That's get pixel the number eight ed.com. All rights reserved. Copyright 2008. Infragistics powering the presentation layer. Infragistics.com.